This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company who I've used for well over a decade now and who are reaching out to you guys, the audience, to offer you 15% not only off one purchase, but an ongoing 15% that will only ever be trumped if something is even for sale for a higher discount than that 15%. I'm going to give you that discount code in just a moment, but I want to talk about another product and showcase that, and that is the AMP, which is the All Missions Pack. So what they've done with this, they've taken an extremely comfortable backpack, you know, hiking quality with some incredible webbing and straps to really even out that load, but they've added what they call the gear set. I think this is extremely pertinent for us because we are jack-of-all-trades, master of none, and we're not just a firefighter, a police officer. You're a father, you're an athlete, you're a hiker, you're a gun owner, whatever it is that you use. And so each of these sets can be added to the pack or taken off. So for me personally, I have the Shove It kit, which allows me to put in brush gear and actually slide my helmet in there if I deploy on a brush fire. Uh, there is a med pouch, which I think doubles very well for a wash bag. Again, I snap it on if I go to the station and then I can remove it for the next two days when I don't need it. So it allows you to have one backpack that's extremely versatile. There's also an element where if you do have weapons, you're going to the range, you can have a short barrel rifle in there. There's a concealed carry pocket. So extremely versatile all around one specific backpack. So the discount code for this and anything else on their site is SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. And as I said, that will get you a discount over and over again if you go to www.511tactical.com. Welcome to episode 342 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I'm extremely excited to welcome on the show Eric Bjornsson. Now, Eric is a retired firefighter from Canada and also a member of an elite mountain rescue team. And his life story is nothing short of incredible. From his service as a firefighter, from the actual expeditions he went on, including Everest, and then the near-death experience he had that resulted in him losing all his fingers, but gaining so much more when it came to the mental health element after battling some of the PTSD that he experienced. So such a powerful conversation, such a diverse set of skills that he was exposed to in the rescue arena, and I can't wait for you to hear them. Before we get to that interview, as we always say, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating makes us more and more visible to people looking for a podcast like this. And this is a free library for you, the audience, whether it's personally or within your department or company, this is a resource for you. So all I ask in return is that you help share these amazing stories from these men and women that have come on the show so I can get them to every single earhole on planet Earth that needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Eric Bjornsson. Enjoy. Eric, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. I want to say thank you as well to our mutual friend Lionel Crowther for connecting us as well. Amazing man. He sure helped me when I was in uh, my hour of need. Excellent. That's great to hear. It doesn't surprise me for a moment, though. So, opening question, where are we finding you on planet Earth today? I'm in North Vancouver, British Columbia, up in rainy Canada. 
Brilliant. All right. So I like to start at the very beginning. Where were you born and what was your family dynamic like? How, how many siblings and what did your parents do? Well, it's funny. I was born across the street from the fire hall I worked at for 30 years. Really? And uh, I have one older sister, uh, two loving parents. They're still alive and still, still together. I had an amazing childhood, like just no real issues. It was perfect childhood. Brilliant. All right. And then when you were young, were you a sportsman yourself? Yeah, I played all, all the team sports, uh, soccer, lacrosse. Never got into hockey. Not sure why. Uh, probably should have. I uh, loved football, but lacrosse was my favorite. Brilliant. And then what about uh, career aspirations? What did you dream of being when you were young? Well, all my uncles would get together at the Christmas parties and get all the other nephews drunk. And they used to sit around and tell stories about their work. And my two favorite uh, stories were from the uncles that were firefighters. So I decided I wanted to be a firefighter probably by the time I was in grade six or grade seven. Oh, really? So you were a lifelong career dream then? Yeah, I started working at it in high school. Like, as soon as I got out of high school, I took uh, specialty courses. And it's actually the only thing I ever dreamed about doing as a child. Right now, when you were when you were at that young school age, did you have any kind of experience or aspirations for extreme climbing back then? Uh, well, the same uncle that was a fireman was also on the North Shore Search and Rescue Team, which is the uh, local volunteer search and rescue team that gets people stuck up in the mountains. So I wanted to climb ever since I saw National Geographic and I saw a picture of uh, Everest. And I was probably even younger. I was probably grade four, grade five when I decided I was going to be a mountaineer also. Right. So which which did you um, get into first? Was it the rescue team or the fire department? I got into the rescue team first, and it was a bit of a stepping stone to get into the fire department because a lot of it uh, was similar training. A lot of it was like rope rescue, first aid, and things that would work really well in both fields. Um, the search and rescue was a natural fit, great bunch of guys and gals. And I just really, really excelled at it. Now, physical attributes. So before you were even in the fire service, when you were um, testing for the, the rescue team, kind of what, what, what was required of you physically? And then what about mentally as well? Uh, physically, like you had to be in shape. You're pretty useless if you couldn't keep up with everybody on a search and held them back. Back then, I was young and strong. Like I, I rode my mountain bike from Vancouver to Mexico on a whim one time over a few months. So I could do those kind of more extreme things with uh, no problem. Well, so you said you drove, you rode to Mexico on a whim? Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah, quite working, a whim. <laughs> well, I was working at a job I hated at a grain elevator, and it was just one of those soul-killing jobs. And I ran to a buddy of mine on Friday who was just glowing. He was so excited and happy. So I asked him what he was up to, and he goes, well, on Monday I'm riding to Mexico. Why don't you come? So I quit my job on Friday, bought a bike on Saturday, and on Monday I uh, went on one of the best trips of my life. Wow. Now, what did you do on the way down? I mean, how did you decide to chop it up? And, you know, what were some of the worst, the, the, the hardest parts of that journey for you both? There wasn't too many hard parts. It was actually super enjoyable. Like, we went and did the entire American coast, which is just beautiful. And the people were so kind. They have uh, hiker-biker sites, which were about 50 kilometers apart which is a really simple day and it was just uh god we got lucky with the weather 
it was perfect. Some people took us in. We met a couple gals that were going to uh, university in California. We ended up staying with them for about three weeks and had their friends try to teach us how to surf, which was uh, a bit funny because we can't surf worth anything. But it was just one of those trips that you just kind of got to know yourself. And I'd tell anybody to go do something like that. It's probably one of the best things you can do for yourself. That's interesting. In, in England, there's a big tradition of when people get out of uh, senior school, high school, to go backpacking before they go to university, just so they can actually see the world and, and really make sure that whatever they're about to enter, they actually want to do. It's a fantastic idea because, you know, once you go to university, then you can't travel till they get the good job. And then you can't travel because you got kids and you can't travel because there's a promotion coming up. So do it while you can. Absolutely. Now, back to the, the rescue team then. Um, in the fire service, especially for us down here in, in California and Florida and Texas, um, it's the heat that is brutal. Um, but obviously for you up there, especially in the winter, um, on the search team, it's the polar opposite, no pun intended. So how did you, how did you deal with uh, the acclimatization for the cold when you first started joining that team? Well, being born and raised in North Down, like you look forward to the cold in the winters, like a beautiful, crisp, snowy day, I think it's fantastic. And it's like anything, you kind of get used to your environment. So the cold was never really a factor. Like when you're cold, you can always put on another layer or work a bit harder. When you're hot for me, I find it very, very difficult because I can't deal with it as, you know, somebody that grew up in that kind of environment. When I did that trip through the Amazon, Oh, that was just punishment for me. Like I'd step out of the shower and start sweating and the locals never seemed to be affected by it. So I think you just get used to whatever environment you were raised up in. Yeah. No, I was raised in England and I worked in California and Florida. So <laughs> 14 years later, the bunker gear, bunker gear was still brutal to me. <laughs> well then, so what was the road from the rescue team to the fire department then? Well, it was pretty... Uh, nonchalant it was just kind of like one step into the other uh there was a bit of animosity which i didn't really understand or really know about but some of the fire departments didn't like the rescue team because they thought they were getting too much uh, media or they were trying to step on too many toes and they were trying to take over the fire department area which never made sense to me if you have professional firefighters why would you want people that were unpaid to go do the work yeah, it's crazy. And I know that there's a kind of theme, isn't there, of, of uh, miscontent um, you know, or whatever the right word would be within you know your journey as we go through. But that's something that I've seen is is very cancerous. You know, the, the police versus the fire or the medics versus the nurses or the city versus the county and, and that kind of ridiculous politics. The, the person that we're trying to rescue is always the one that, that loses in that battle. I know for me, like, I thought the fire department would really, really like the fact that on my days off, I was going off training and rescuing people in my community. But I, there was so much animosity between the fire department and the, the search and rescue team. I actually got called into the chief's office a couple separate times and told I should do less with the uh, search and rescue or should, I should actually quit. I never quite understood that because if I went on a three-day drunk with the other firefighters to a cabin somewhere, that's fine. But if I went on a three-day avalanche training course, actually improved my skills and 
better myself, that's somehow a bad thing. So I never quite understood where this animosity or where this came from. So obviously I never listened to him. Yeah. Yeah, I've had the same thing in in my last apartment, and it almost feels like there there is a, a fragile ego involved. That if you're trying to improve yourself, um, and you're out there doing it off your own back, then as people say, you're looking me, you're making me look bad. You know, your your um, go getter attitude is now making someone feel insecure. So one way, if they've got bugles on their their shirt, is they can suppress it. Oh. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I don't remember how many times the same guy that uh, told me I was a show-off came to me for advice on the actual rescue because he didn't know what he was doing. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. You know, the, the fire service, we're all jack-of-all-trades. So it's good to have the rope rescue guy, the extrication you know, woman, the, you know, the, the medic who's great with cardiac rhythms. You know, that we, we all need to grab a specialty the same way as the special operations groups do. We can all do everything, but you know, there should be people that are expert in that, that one field. So you go to them when you need to rig some complex system or go do a pick-off of a skyscraper somewhere. Exactly. Like, I think I was in almost my 20th year before the fire department sent me on a rope rescue course. So all the training I had all came from the search and rescue team. So you think they'd be grateful that I was trained to a higher level than everybody else around me, and it didn't cost them a penny. Yeah. So overall, with with your department, what was training like? Were were you guys held to a pretty high standard overall? No, we we had no standard. Um, God, I think I spent far more time going to garage sales than I ever did training. I could probably, uh, count on one hand the time training was, uh, kind of put forward. I remember I got called into the training officer's, uh, office twice and told the first time I was only about a three or four year man. And I was super keen when I first got hired. I wanted to know everything. I wanted to do everything. So a couple, uh, courses came up and I thought, well, it's all seniority and I know I won't get them, but I want to show them that I'm interested. So I put my name in. So it's just, I knew I probably wouldn't get it, but I thought if there's an open spot, great. So I get called into the training chiefs. He closes the door, starts screaming at me about what an arrogant little prick I am and how dare I think that I could get the training and teach the other firefighters. And I thought, oh, kind of not the, uh, that wasn't what I was going for. <laughs> it's not the and, reaction you want. Yeah, so I didn't put in for training for probably another decade. And it was so funny because I'd do all my training with the search and rescue team. And then I'd come back to the fire hall and we'd go, I'd sit on the back of the truck while they do driving training, which doesn't really help me. And I just watch the world go by. So I think I probably got more trained. Actually, I know I got more training from search and rescue than I ever did in my own department. And if I tried to excel at my own department, it usually backfired on me because uh, they thought I was trying to be a hotshot. Yeah, and and the, the, there's such a diverse mixture of departments. There's people listening now that just have no idea what you're talking about because they have a great department and they train a lot. And you know, I came from a department in California that was just like that. And then conversely, I, I had one where you know I wanted to redo a class like VMR, and they'd be like, "We well, already have it." I was like, yeah, but I'm not checking a box. I'm trying to stay good at this this skill. Yeah. You don't do it once in 30 years, and then that's it. You got the piece of paper. So the 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 spectrum of understanding and 
you know, aggression towards training is so, so, you know, diverse that it's, it's sad that our profession is so um, disjointed when it comes to standards like that. Well, the problem with my department is we're a tiny, we're a one hall fire hall. So we only have one hall and we're our very, very seniority based. So when you only have one fire hall, it's hard to take a truck out of service to do training. And if it's seniority based, the same four guys were getting all the courses. So we had four super firemen and like 46 other guys that were just kind of there like me, which is very unfortunate because I wanted, I really desired to be the best firefighter I could. Yeah, no, that is wrong. It's absolutely wrong because you want you want everyone to be good and you should be able to rotate people through through training. And I think that's the problem we're seeing a lot. I mean, obviously, some of the, the things that are happening in the U.S. at the moment are a result of, you know, whor- poor hiring practices, lack of training, you know, some some horrendous things we've seen on television. But, you know, that when lives are at stake, that money should be found, you know, to, to make every single person that wears the badge able to do whatever is asked of them under their job description. And I think in the long run, it saves a lot of money and it saves a lot of respect because if you've got a couple of firemen that show up and they don't know what they're doing and they're being filmed and somebody gets hurt and there's a lawsuit, that money you lose in the lawsuit would probably be enough to train the entire fire department up to a level that where something like that wouldn't happen. And I got to say that my department, I wished I didn't get hired when I did I wish I got hired tomorrow because I think the chiefs that are work there now, they're not like the guys I worked with that see that agree with that. And they're actually making some fantastic changes. I talked to a couple of firemen now from my department who love it. And it's starting to be like that where, you know, we're not just checking the boxes anymore. We're not just giving like four guys every single bit of training and everybody else misses out. So changes like town of the state, they're slow, but they're being made. Yeah, well, that's great to hear. I've heard of some departments like Charleston is a great example. You know, they had that horrific tragedy where they lost the the nine men and then they reinvented themselves from the ground up, you know, and I think that's it. We have to learn from mistakes, whether they're, you know, fatal or whether they're near misses to, to, to grow and improve because lives are, you know, in our hands, as simple as that. I know it is sad too, but it does take... Uh a lot for change. Like, I don't know why this, I shouldn't say the fire department. I think it's a lot of different types of departments. They'll wait for a couple dead guys and then say, Oh, maybe we should do something. What I've noticed now is now we're talking about PTSD up in Canada and it is fantastic. We should have been talking about this 30 years ago, but unfortunately six or seven men and women gave their lives up for us to get to the point and say, well, you know, maybe, Maybe there is a problem. Yeah, no, exactly. Exactly. I mean, that's the thing. We, we, we have such a, an expanse of history, whether it's racism in America, whether it's, you know, mental health from, you know, soldiers and police officers and firefighters. And, you know, why do we have to wait for tragedy before we learn from history? And even then, how long does that lesson stick before we go back to the way it was before? So, yeah, it's it's. I'm glad that we're finally paying attention now because we're losing so many people up there, down here in the UK, all around the world, to this mental health crisis. Oh, it's fantastic! And the first thing that happens when you start talking about it, the people that were on the fence that may have had the shotgun but not quite put it in their mouth yet, actually find out that they're not the only ones 
maybe they should go uh, get some help before it's too late. And they're actually, I think, probably saved I know, a large amount of lives up here, and I'm sure all around the world. Because now it's not that stigma where, oh, my God, I asked for help. I'm useless. Now it's, oh, I asked for help. Hopefully I'll get it. Yeah. Well, exactly. And I think that's the thing that people need to understand. If I ask for help and I, and I go through therapy or counseling or EMDR or whatever works for me, I'm going to be more resilient. I'm going to be a better police officer, firefighter, medic on the other side of my journey. Exactly. And then won't the public benefit from that? Like for me, in the last couple of years of my career, I hate to admit this. I'm ashamed to admit this. I was a useless fire captain. I didn't care about the job. I didn't care about my department. I was there to get my paycheck. And I got to say, what a waste. Like the guys below me could tell I didn't want to be there. And it sets a tone for the entire shift. Now, if you get four captains like that on all four shifts, that department's going to pretty much suck. But if you got those captains that help when they ask for it, then they're going to be there going, oh, God, I want to make this the best department in the world. Like today, I want to do this. And then I want to make sure my men have everything they need. Instead of a guy going, ah, well, it's Tuesday. Why don't we uh, go stare at paint dry? <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's you know, it's an extreme example, but it's very true because the number of people I've seen that have the countdown apps on their phones, like I, I retire in four and a half years. If you're thinking that way, and you know, and you've got four and a half years of your career to go, the chances of you investing in your crew and in your department are probably pretty slim. And I think, like you're pointing out, that might be the the toll of the job. It might be time to go and seek some help and and figure out if this kind of negative outlook might be deeper than you realize. Exactly. Because I think like you're the, as a captain, you're already wrecked. You're, you're pretty useless. Now you guy coming below you, who's watching you emulating you getting pissed off. Well, he's probably going to get the same mindset. And now you've created another useless fireman instead of like you say, building your shift up to where they go, Holy cow. I'm so excited to go to work today. We're going to go do some high angle rescue training. This is going to be fantastic. Instead of going, oh, it's Tuesday. Ugh. Yeah, exactly. Well, now I know obviously we're going to talk about, you know, climbing Logan in a minute. Um, was that a pivotal point? Was that an aha moment? Or did you have any any times before that where you started to be aware of, you know, maybe some mental health challenges leading up to that? Uh, I had no mental health challenges whatsoever up to then. Like, I didn't respect my chiefs. Not a big deal. A lot of firemen don't. Um, didn't really care about the job that much because it was a bit of a joke. Like, we didn't train. We just showed up. But for the most part, I was extremely happy. I was extremely well well set. And then I went on Logan. And it wasn't the actual injury for for the listeners. I, I froze nine of my fingertips off and half a thumb. That injury never really bothered me that much because I could explain it scientifically. Yeah, we got hit by a subtropical cyclone. You know, we were trapped for four days. You know, we're lucky to be alive. And I only lost my fingertips. So it wasn't that big of a deal. But it was how I got treated when I returned to the job as a firefighter. Like, that's where the mental health just broke down. 
Right. Well, but staying on Logan for a moment, because I want to get to, to that, because that was very disappointing, you know, what, what you're about to talk about. Um, but tell me about the actual expedition, what your, you know, what your planning was, what you expected conditions to be, and then, and then what this crazy right turn was when you got to the top. Well, Mount Logan's the highest mountain in Canada, second highest in North America after Mount McKinley. And it's a, it's a pretty extreme mountain, like all second highest. It's usually a lot harder than the highest, like K2 and Everest. So it uh, takes about a month. You know, average day up there is negative 50. It's beautiful, though. It's really crisp, clear. It's really, really remote. There's not the infrastructure McKinley has. So there's no rangers that can help you. There's not very many other climbing teams. Uh, we got up there. A couple guys summited. We build these safe camps. They're like uh, igloos, gigantic igloos that you put your tent in at night in case storms hit. And storms hit there often. So as long as you're in one of these safe camps, you're fine. And me and two other guys were between two camps. We'd already had our summit attempt. We're on our way down the mountain. All we have to do is walk for a couple days, and we're going to be off the mountain after a month. And we got up on a ridge. And we got hit by a subtropical cyclone, which knocked us out. We couldn't move. We put ice screws into the ground, attached ourselves to the ice screws. The wind was so powerful, it was picking us up, and we were kiting. We were able to get a tent up, but that got ripped apart. Then we dug a snow grave, and we laid there for two and a half days without food or water, with the wind chill in negative 90. Crazy. Now, I heard you were talking in one of the other podcasts, um, the snow grave. So you dug a hole. There were three of you in there. Is that right? Yeah, there is uh, Don, Alex, and I, and it's not even uh, is the snow up there is so hard because the winds are so powerful. Any topical snow just gets blown off, so it's blue ice. So when we finally started to dig, and I say we, what I mean is Alex and Don, because by then my hands were already frozen. He could only chip the ice and then try to scoop it out, and he dug basically a trench, and then we just laid in the trench. Right, and then uh, I thought it was very interesting. Tell me about the injuries of top, bottom, and middle. Well, I was on the bottom, and there's still some dispute over this because we were all so hypothermic at the time. None of us really kind of know what exactly happened. And I, I swear we were piled like sardines, and Don says we were side by side. But I remember being on the bottom, and I was getting the cold from the bottom, Alex was in the middle, so he was getting the heat from me and the heat from Don. And Don was on the top, and his toes were sticking out of the uh, the lips. So he lost all his toes to frostbite. I lost all my hands because when I was in the tent, I took my big gloves off to light the stove just as a rogue gust of wind came and ripped the tent apart with me in it. And I lost my two overset of mitts. So basically, I lost all my fingertips. Don lost all his finger toes or uh, the tips of his toes. And then Alex, uh, he was so hypothermic, he was uh, convulsing from the hypothermia. But uh, once our buddies got to us a few days later and warmed us up, he was completely fine. He didn't have a, he didn't lose anything, not even a fingernail, I don't think. That's amazing. Now, um, I want to we'll talk about, you know, how a rescue was even initiated in a moment. But when you were on there, you didn't know anyone was coming. What was your self-talk to get you through those hours that turned into days? Well, you go through the same stages as death, like, you know, the five stages. And I remember 
thinking, oh, if God, if you get me out of this, I'll do this, this, and this. And then, you know, the anger. And then, you know, finally at the end, it was acceptance. There was one point where the, it's extremely painful to start to freeze to death. Um, and it was so painful. I thought, well, if I undid my jacket and rolled off the cliff, I'd probably die within like two minutes and then the pain would be over. And I remember thinking, oh, if my kids found out I did that and they found out I didn't fight to the very end, I think they'd be uh, upset with me. And I remember like arguing with myself, you know, should I just kill myself and stop the pain or, you know, just put up with it. So luckily for me, I made the right choice and put up with it. But we, we were basically waiting to die because we had no idea. We, we didn't have the satellite phone, so we couldn't talk to the outside world. We could only talk to the uh, climbing group below us from our, uh, from our team, Barry and Lynn, or Barry, no, Barry and, oh God, I'm trying to remember her name now. Shit. But we could only talk to the group below us, and obviously they couldn't come up and help us because they're in a safe place, and you can't ask two people to come from a safe place to a deadly place and you know then you would have five dead so we were kind of sitting there waiting and hoping and praying and you know thank god it turned out the way it did and then the group above us we knew would come eventually but we figured that they would come and kind of just flag the bodies and carry on yeah that's awful so so correct me if i'm wrong your mentor tim jones was the one that initiated the rescue well, what happened was the group above us, the storm, as quick as the storm came, like it hit us within 15 minutes of us seeing the clouds. So it was a, within 15 minutes, it went from bright blue sky, negative 50, to you couldn't see the hand in front of your face, negative 90. And it was like that for almost three days. And then just as quick as it came, it left. And then it went back to the blue sky, negative 50, which was like stepping into a sauna. So the group above us, they were in a safe camp. They broke camp. They just left everything and they started running down the mountain because they were scared for their lives also. And when they came around a rock band, they had line of sight so we could actually talk to them. So we radioed them and gave them our uh, mayday. And basically, you know, we're on death's door. You know, we're, we're gone. So they phoned uh, the Canadian Parks. And the Canadian parks doesn't have the infrastructure up there to do a high altitude rescue. Like or, um, the town outside where we left, I think the population's in the hundreds. So they don't have like high altitude helicopters and long lines and all that. So they couldn't really help us. So they phoned 911. So now you're talking to some lady behind a desk in a small town saying, yeah, we're trapped up on this mountain, you know, Obviously, they can't help us. They're not, they can't send a squad car. So out of desperation, he called Tim Jones back in Vancouver and told him what was going on. And Tim's one of those guys that he prepares for everything. And thank God he was prepared to help us. So when, that, when he got that call, he started phoning around. He got uh, the American military involved. He contacted a high-altitude helicopter out of Talkeetna, Alaska, and he set the dominoes going that saved our lives because I got to admit, I am so surprised that I got off that mountain. So happy, but very, very surprised. 
So, so you said the American military actually came in and rescued you guys off the, the face of there? Yeah, they came in from uh, Anderson's Air Force, Air Force Base up in Alaska. And before they came, they contacted a guy called Jim Hood, who does all the uh, high-altitude rescues on Mount McKinley, to see if he could help. And between the two of them and then the Canadian Parks Board got involved. And to tell you the truth, I, to this day, I don't really know who did what. But I'm so thankful to everybody that did something because I am alive because of all the heroes that got together, worked together, and, you know, made this possible. Yeah. Well, well, going back around to what we talked about earlier, that's exactly it. When agencies are working together, incredible things happen. And when agencies work against each other, you know, people are... People die, so it's amazing that you had this international cooperation to facilitate that rescue. Oh, that was because could you imagine if um, they had a rescue team up there that said, "No, no, we're good. We don't need any help." Like our bodies would still be up there. Yeah, crazy. Well, then, speak. You mentioned Tim, so I've I've heard you talk about him. What what was different with him um, and your journey through the rescue team that was that was different than your fire department experience well it was so bizarre like i came back and i knew the you know i was going to come back to a tick, ticker tape parade but i came back and i was injured i didn't know whether i could do my job as a fireman i didn't know whether i was going to be able to take care of myself i was i was a terrified man you know i was alone didn't really know what was going to happen they just amputated my fingers so i didn't know what i could do with myself and I remember Tim sitting me back down and, you know, just calming me and saying, you know, Eric, no matter what, you, you always got a place for the rescue team. Like you can drive the truck. And he was, he was thinking of jobs I could do. And the fire department, they, they were uh, kind of the best I could hope for was indifference. When I told them I wanted to come back as a fireman, because the longer I had my fingers amputated, the more I found I could do easily. Then they became... Oh, the animosity. Like I, the chief called me in and told me I was a joke. Um, he, I couldn't do the job. Why would I embarrass myself even trying? And I'm thinking, I'm going, well, at least give me a chance. Like if I, if you give me the test and I fail, well, then I know, but I'd like to have the chance. And he was, oh, you could tell he, he was angry that I wasted his time. And I'm thinking, well, what about this brotherhood I keep seeing on TV? Like, you know, I don't expect you guys to actually help me, but I didn't think you'd be working against me. And his favorite saying was uh, either, this is why nobody likes you, or the other one, what was his other one? Oh, if you fail one thing, you're out. Wow. And I go, well, that's, that's great motivational speech. <laughs> and in fact, it helped me a lot because I just like this guy so much. Like this guy, he's about as useful and pleasant to be around as a dildo made out of a cactus. So my hatred for this guy drove me when I was doing stuff and my hands were hurting. I go, I'm going to keep going another half hour because I want to be able to look at this guy and smirk after I pass this. And that's what I did. Yeah. So they set up tasks that they, they required you to do things that other people weren't tested on just to, to basically try and get you to fail. Well, um, firefighters will know what a partner saw is uh, you know, a lot of people don't. And, how many firefighters out there were tested on holding a partner saw over their head, cutting metal. And I was an officer at the time of my accident. 
And even if somebody had to do something that stupid, it wouldn't have been me to do it. I would have yelled at a young guy to do it. But I thought, well, why am I the only one in the history of my department that has to cut metal above his head with his par partner saw after being told if I fail one thing, I'm out. But luckily for me, I was able to do it. And I remember looking over at him and, you know, instead of, you know, the fireman going, hey, you know, good job, way to go. Is oh, that, you know, that, that was easy. You know, in real life, it would go, oh, whatever. Yeah. Well, so what I'm seeing is that you said there was no, you know, a lot of training, you know, the, the, the hiring practices were low. I've, I've seen both sides and I've been held to a very, very high standard in academies and, you know, it's, it's a crucible and you, and you have that pride and ownership at the end that you pass and then you carry on training through your whole career. And then you have the polar opposite where it's an open door. You know, you just walk in, there's no training. And what I saw is if you hold that bar high, and you train a lot and you work out together, that brother and sisterhood is there. You know, you hold each other to a high standard. If there's not that training, not that standard, not that, you know, um, ambition to be a little bit better every shift, I that's to me is where you don't see a lot of the brother and sisterhood. And I witnessed both sides of that kind of spectrum. And, you know, it seems like, the sadly, that was the issue with, with your time in that department, in that period, you know, those decades that you were there, was... It didn't appear like there was brother and sisterhood in that department, which is why you were probably treated so badly when you got back. I, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Like, if we were working together and training together, and if, like, if we had a lot of fires, because I know that really brings a, a department together, is when you go to a big fire, you know, you sit around and talk about it and laugh about it and who made what mistake and, you know, how can you do it better? Like, when we had a fire, like, they would pick things that went wrong and publicly embarrass people, but they would never train to make sure it never happened again. And uh, therefore the brotherhood, you know, I don't want to get shit. So I'm going to throw this guy under the bus. So everybody's going to look at him and say, he's the problem, not me. Yeah, exactly. Well, I want to talk about your, your mental journey, but let's just, just on the, the physical side, just for a second. So you lost, you know, eight fingers. Um, what was your physical recovery like? How were you able to get back to the point where you could hold these saws and, and advance hose and, and the tasks that we do? Well, I've traveled a fair bit in my life. And one of the things that I did is I went to China and I was just traveling around China and there was a Shaolin temple that uh, invited foreigners and in just, I guess, to raise some money. So I went in there and studied uh, Shaolin Kung Fu for a while. And one of the things they had me do is... Uh, dip my or hit my knuckles into sand like repeatedly to build up the calluses on my knuckles now that that's pretty good you know makes sense and you know there a couple of weeks had some fun then moved on so when this happened <coughs> oh, excuse me my fingertips were so sensitive they were like just been amputated so it was like open wounds like open bone like an open fractured finger so if a strong wind would make them hurt. If I bumped them into anything, the pain would go like up to my jaw. So I knew I couldn't do anything until I desensitized them. So I would sit there with a bowl of uncooked rice in front of the TV and I would just drive my hand into it. and The pain would just be intense. So I'd do it again. And like at first I could only do it once every five or 10 minutes. And then I just keep going and going till tears, you know, were coming down until like blood and pus filled the bowl. And then I'd get a new bowl. And I did that for weeks until my fingertips 
after about uh, a month were as strong as my elbow. I did not expect there to be a Shaolin Kung Fu story to that answer. That was amazing. <laughs> well, you know what they're doing sometimes, those Shaolin. I got to admit that. <laughs> no, I can, I can totally relate. Now, I've had many, many amputees on the show. You know, many of them were veterans, returning veterans. Um, and that was a big thing. They said, you know, the pressure on, you know, the femur or whatever it was that they were be- uh, bearing weight on now was the hardest thing. It wasn't even so much the 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 mobility element but it was just that pain on that edge of the bone um so you know i can see even even me like i've been throwing this whole uh, coronavirus been conditioning my shins on my heavy bag i hadn't kicked it for years and the first few times oh my god you think i've been shot the way, <laughs> the way i was <laughs> cowering to it but you know it does over time it does work so that 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 makes perfect sense but obviously there was a desire to return to work as well if you were putting yourself through all that trauma to get to that point well i really wanted to show to get back to as normal a life as i could like i wanted to feel good about myself like i was told well just go on disability. You hit the jackpot. You can go on disability forever. Well, I don't want to go on disability. I want to be a firefighter. I want to run in there and save the baby. That's what I always wanted to do from being a little kid. And I wanted to go back to search and rescue and go back to climbing and go back to traveling. I just want to feel normal. So the quicker I could get back as a firefighter, I thought the more normal I would feel and it would show everybody, hey, you know, maybe he isn't just like this awkward geek, you know, joke of a fireman. Maybe he can actually do the job. So I got to admit, it's one of the things I worked the hardest in my life to do was to get back and become a firefighter. And I went from having eight fingers and half a thumb amputated or, you know, losing it in May of uh, 2005. And by March of 2006, I was able to retest and return to my job as a fireman, which I thought was exceptional. Everybody was so proud of me. Like, everybody thought it was the greatest thing, except the fire department, who thought, you know, well, you got lucky. Don't do anything stupid again. See, and I'm sure like 95% of people listening are so disappointed, you know, because that we are, we do have that element of brother and sisterhood. I think especially if you listen to to this podcast, you know, you're, you're trying to make yourself better. Um, and so, you know, we see it may be just the one crew, it may be a whole department, depending on how fortunate people are. But it's, it's sad when you come across, you know, department stations, crews where they don't have that, because that is, to me, the best part of the job, like you said, loading hose with a group of men and women that you just fought fire with, is one of the, the most amazing feelings a firefighter can experience. Oh, it is. Like, I've done a lot of talks, and I've helped a lot of firefighters. I was involved in some uh, peer counseling for firefighters with PTSD. And every fireman I've ever talked to, except for some people in my department, were the same as you. Was Oh, you know, I'm so sorry that happened to you. And, you know, if you worked in our department, I don't think that would have happened. And I truly, truly believe, I don't think it would happen very many places. No, I, I agree. Now, an interesting thing that I only came across recently was how much um, organizational stress, stress from the workplace factors into mental health. Clearly, with this, this, um, you know, this, this story that you, the journey that you went through, 
that is a big factor. It was actually a big factor in my last apartment too. So I got to see it firsthand. What was your mental health journey like from from the the rescue moving forward? Well, uh, everything negative at the fire department, I'd get something positive from the search and rescue community. So I really fell back on them and I fell back on friends and family. At the time, um, PTSD and stress weren't really considered a problem. So there was nothing set up. So I had nowhere to go when I had a problem. So that part really kind of affected me negatively because I did reach out to my union. I told them I was suffering. I told them that I was self-medicating with alcohol to the point where I was killing myself. And, you know, a whole bunch of questions were asked, like, um, you know, how many 24-hour suspensions do I have? How often do I drink at the fire hall? Do I drink before a shift? And, like, I was a very controlled drunk. So on my days off, from my drive home to the night before, I would just drown myself with booze. But I would never, ever drink, and I would never drink and drive. So because I didn't do those two things, they go, well, you don't really have a problem. So keep up the good work, pat on the back, off you go. And that kind of put me in a downward spiral. And then there was an incident that uh, happened that uh, mentor you talked about, Tim Jones, he uh, unfortunately passed in my arms. And I had to do CPR on him with his daughter, which was very, very uh, traumatic. And he ended up passing. And somebody at the fire hall thought it would be funny to fill my locker full of uh, CPR manuals. And that kind of set me on a quicker downward spiral where I isolated myself for my entire shift. Now I'm the senior captain. I'm in charge of the whole shift. And instead of out being out there building them up and trying to make them better firefighters, I was avoiding everybody like the plague. So I just hide in my room and I'd only come out if I absolutely had to. And if you're the senior chief and you're hiding, you're pretty useless. And that kind of, again, put me in a bigger downward spiral because I know I'm a useless fireman. I know I'm self-medicating on my days off. I ask for help. Nobody thinks I need it. What do I do? And I ended up uh, just walking off the job one day. Yeah, and you look at the path that you went through. So obviously, you know, a career, any any first responder's career is going to have trauma. So that's going to build up. And then, you know, you've got obviously the near-death experience on the mountain and then the loss of, you know, your your closest friend. When you take a step back and look at that path, obviously there's there's a huge amount of trauma, a huge amount of you know stress that could cause mental health challenges. And with the the CPR um, incident, the the manual incident, I had a similar thing going through going through my divorce, going through paramedic school. I mean, I was so burnt out. I was working you know constantly, and one of my friends, who's a friend, just a really shitty judgment that day, went into my screensaver was just me and my son and wrote pedophile over the top and it took all the strength in the world not to break his jaw right in the middle of that station you know because it was so fucking inappropriate so the for them to do that that's not a firehouse joke that's just disgusting you lost your friend you were doing cpr so that shows that that it's not it's not hazing it's not firehouse jokes that's just you know hateful actions and I think it is like we are looking for that brotherhood too. So this should be your safe place. This is where you should become. Like I'm not telling anybody to go to the fire hall and start telling them your problems because they, they don't care. But you should be able to feel safe there. So when it happens at the fire hall, it's like a double kick in the face. 
Yeah. So you walked out of the station then. What what were your what was your journey after that? You know, you've you've you were hoping that was gonna be a you know, an environment where at least you had some camaraderie or some tribe and now they turned on you. So so what were those following few weeks like for you? Well the following few weeks were absolutely devastating. Like that's when I was became suicidal. Like I gave up on myself. And it was only after about uh, a month or two of my family helping that I realized that like, I was just in a toxic environment. Um, I'm out of it now. So the best revenge is good living. So why not better myself? And that's when I finally got counseling. Finally, you know, started to better myself, uh, got rid of the bottles and started to improve. And the thing that made me like, well, the light was at the end of the tunnel was knowing that I never had to go back to that fire hall ever again. Yeah, I think that's something that people don't realize is that occasionally I had, I had a great um, uh, leadership uh, guru, if you like, Jocko Willink on a couple of times, and, uh, and we explored this whole thing. And I was actually in that toxic environment I told you about. And even he, his answers were like, all right, that's just made me decide that the answer for me personally in this environment is to remove myself from it. You know, sometimes that is the answer, and you you feel like a failure because you're like, I should have done more. It's a it's a a long term challenge, and you have to play the long game. But sometimes you're like, no, this is just not the right place for me to be. And you know, you gotta admit when you're outgunned and outnumbered, like if there's nothing I could do to improve the situation, so remove yourself. Exactly. Work. You know, you're not gonna run in. To a burning building as the roof's caving in only to kill yourself while everybody else is already out of the building yeah and that's what i felt yeah. like yeah well exactly and that's the thing if you can't trust those men or women to be right behind you when you are going in for a search with the hose line go on the roof whatever it is then those are not the people you need to be around exactly and like some of the guys that were uh on the union had already gone to and i told them they were Every problem I had, I told them that I had, you know, was drinking and I told them, you know, I wasn't comfortable and these things were happening. And I found that they were the ones that uh, were the ones willing to kind of call me out in public. I go, well, you know why I did that. I told you why I was doing that. You know, I came to you for help. Not only did you not help me, but now you're calling me out in public in front of my shift about it. I'm thinking, oh, yeah, you know, I've. So, so what did work? So there you are. I mean, literally contemplating taking your own life. You know, relying on alcohol to drown your, you know, your emotions. Was was there a, a moment of clarity, or was it just the progressive um, support from your other uh, tribes that slowly helped get you back into where you needed to be? Uh, support from the other tribes. What I found that helped me the most was peer peer based counseling. Like when you're go to counseling, it has to be with people like who kind of understand what you're going through. Like for me to sit in a room full of accountants and tell them, you know, some of my stories, they wouldn't get it because, you know, just like I wouldn't understand theirs. So peer based, you know, counseling, if you have that available, I strongly, strongly suggest you take it. Even if you don't think you don't need it, that's the best time because what do you want to do? Like there's a high angle rescue. Do you want the training before you go to the high angle rescue or after? And why wait till after you're so mentally broken 
that there's a problem. Why not get all the training before? And one of the great things I noticed is a lot of the younger firefighters are embracing that. So they're starting to talk about PTSD in like the third and fourth year, not because they're, they're pussies for lack of a better word, but because they're so much smarter than I am that they know that they're going to need it eventually. So why not get it before they need it and know what the, uh, signs and symptoms are, know what to avoid and know that, you know, if I'm drinking on my three days off by myself, there's a problem. Yeah. And I'm sure there's so many people listening to this that can relate. I mean, I've, I've lent on alcohol most of my life, never to an extreme, but it's been a slippery slope and I've had one foot on each side. Sometimes, you know, I have a drink in the, in the daytime with lunch and I'm like, what am I doing? I don't need to be drinking now. But again, it's, it's a, it's a good way to wind down. It's a good way to, to to feel something or not feel something. I mean, it's such a all-encompassing drug. It's so easy to get that I think a lot of us look at the opioid, you know, addicts and some of these things that that we also see taking our first responders' lives. But we forget that alcohol is the most relied on negative coping me- mechanism in our profession. Oh, it's un- unbelievable! Like in two thousand nine, I climbed Mount Everest after my accident, and I made it all the way up to right beneath the Hillary Step. So you got to be in pretty good shape. So in 2009, I'm on Everest. By 2014, 15, I was out of breath going up a flight of steps. And that was all because I put on about 40 or 50 pounds, all just from drinking. And it's one of those things too, like what I'd like to do is see like, um, you know, people in the fire hall recognize that. Like here's a guy who put on 50 pounds, went from being an extreme athlete to now he's, he won't leave his house unless it's a special occasion. You know, maybe somebody should ask him, are you okay? You know, what's, what's going on? Not just sit there and make fat jokes, but actually have somebody say, you know, is there a problem here? Yeah, no, I agree 100%. And I think that where we've really dropped the ball as well is as, as a nation, you know, as, as, as a, you know, the West in general is not identifying that addiction, whether it's, you know, opioids or whatever it is, alcohol, that that's a mental health crisis. So we, we're very quick to label someone as a drunk as well, an alcoholic. You know, we know, we know the firefighters that come in reeking of alcohol. Well, they're in crisis. That's a mental health crisis. So, Rather than labeling them as, as a drunk and writing them off, we need to be finding them help, you know, not only with their addiction, but whatever is beneath that surface that's causing them to drink in the first place. Exactly. And like, reach out to our retired guys. Like, again, this shows how bad it was because I'm as equally at fault as anybody else in my department. We have one of our retired guys and we all knew we saw him like waiting at the liquor store before it opened, he's standing in line waiting for the liquor store to open. And he looks terrible. He looks like a homeless guy. And we kind of laughed at it and kept on driving back to the hall. But not one of us thought, holy cow, like, why reach out to him? And to this very day, I'm so ashamed of myself. I never reached out to him, never thought, well, maybe he's got a mental health issue. Luckily, one of the other firemen, one of the older guys did, helped him. And he's doing much better now. But the fact that, like, I'd like to think I'm not super intelligent, but I'm intelligent enough that I would see somebody in crisis. And for the life of me, I didn't realize it at that time because I had no training to what to look out for. 
So why do we get these young guys the training? So they, if one of the young guys today saw me doing that, they'd say, oh, you know, maybe somebody should reach out to Eric and say, you know, are you okay? <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Wouldn't it be a better place? Oh, absolutely. Now, with your journey out, because you were relying on alcohol and you were, you know, uh, dealing with some, some mental trauma, the, the peer counseling obviously related you with with you know people that understood the profession but were there any specific things that helped a lot emdr or or animal therapy or specific type of counseling that you found work for you well for me it's kind of an unusual one but it was a motorcycle club community i joined a club made up made up of all firefighters called the florian's Knights. and when you ride your like your bike like i said i would never drink and drive so if i'm on my harley with these other firefighters I, I wouldn't drink. So I was with them for about 10 months and I found that in all the other bike clubs, like they weren't, Oh, look at this gimp with uh, missing all his fingers. It was, wow, you can ride your bike with the, that prosthetic or wow, you can, you know, Oh, and then like people saying, thank you for your service. Oh, you're a firefighter. Thank you for all you did. And like, yeah, this is nice. So I kind of had a tribe again and that really, really helped me. Um, if I was younger and better shape, I would join, uh, a hiking group, like any time that'll anything that'll force you to get out of your house with positive people doing something positive is a good thing. Absolutely. Well, you, you mentioned the riding the bike. That reminds me of a, a guest I had on, Dr. B.J. Miller, who, very long story short, when he was a young man in um, in college, had climbed up on a streetcar and got shocked. It arced into his wristwatch and he lost both legs and an arm. Um, and he rides bikes. He's got all these prostheses that, that allow him to ride a Harley, which is incredible. I think it's a Harley he has. Um, so tell me about your journey into prostheses and how that helped you in, in you know, the fire service and then everyday life. Well, somebody sent me uh, a link. It was, they, it was a, as a joke. And they said, oh, Eric, you should get one of these. And it was a guy wearing a prosthetic hand from a naked prosthetics out in the States out of Olympia, Washington. And I looked at it and I go, yeah, maybe I should. So I contacted them. Next thing you know, I got one and I found it was super helpful. It was right at the end of my firefighting career. And if I had it during my career, it would have really helped because I really struggled holding like the jaws of life or a chainsaw for extended periods of time because I'm squishing it in between my fingers instead of cupping it like a normal person. And this allows you to cup it. So it would have really, really helped. And if there's anybody out there that's an amputee, like only hand amputees so far, but this company is amazing. Take a look at their website and see if there's something available for you. And you said naked prosthetics? Yeah, they call it naked because they don't cover it. They It looks like a Terminator hand. So it's uh, naked. So they, they don't try to put skin on it to try to make it look like a regular hand. They just, it is what it is. You like it or you don't. Yeah. Well, that picture, um, I saw on one of the interviews that you did, um, I'm actually going to post it when I, when I promote this episode, but with you holding the, the axe in your gear and you've got that handle, but that was, that was a very powerful image. Oh, it's perfect for axes. Like I could swing an axe all day with it. Whereas before I'd be tired after five or 10 minutes. Incredible. Yeah. I mean, the, the adaptive world, you know, the, the exercise side of, people who have got, you know, physical challenges is just 
so amazing to watch now. And then the same with, with prosthesis. Even, you know, colorblindness, my goodness, you can buy, you know, glasses that help that now. But no matter what <laughs> someone's lost, you know, you can overcome it. Even, yeah, I heard you mentioning um, a soldier who was hit with an axe in the head um, and now has an exoskeleton to help him walk. Yeah, that was Mr. Green, just an amazing man, like another real comeback story. Like he just went from death's door to now like he's trying to live his life as normal as he can, just like, you know, most of us that get uh, amputations or brain injuries. We just we just want to get back to feeling as normal as humanly possible. And like if you don't like us, you know, indifference is fine. But don't give us your opinion on why we shouldn't do stuff. Like, I don't know how many people said, well, why do you ride a Harley? Wouldn't a car be more comfortable? And a car is more comfortable. But, you know, there's a reason dogs stick their head out the windows. That wind. There's some, <laughs> we call it wind therapy. Like, I like riding a Harley. If I want to ride a Harley, you know, don't bother me. If I'm on the, all over the road and I'm constantly crashing, okay, if you're my doctor, maybe you can say something. But if you're just some wingnut who uh, doesn't think it's a good idea, Keep it to yourself. I think you're ugly. Don't go outside. Like how, <laughs> like how would that be useful to say that to someone? No. Well, and that's the thing. The world needs people who are going to encourage, not tear down, especially now, you know, more now than ever, that we need to have that compassion and kindness rather than that, that hatred. And that's, that's the, the, the base of what we're seeing at the moment. Oh, like we're running out of things to be different about. Like, you know, so, so far the only thing we got left I think it's color, religion, and amputation. Like, if we can get over that, like, oh, my God, this world would be so much better. It's, we go back to my Mount Logan rescue. Like, if they said, oh, we don't want to rescue them because of, uh, oh, they're Christians or they're Catholics or something. Like, oh, my God, like, how can you have that mindset? A person is a person no matter what. Shouldn't we do everything humanly possible for the person? Like the great thing about the search and rescue team is we'd go looking for them. And I don't remember anybody ever saying their color, race, or religion. No, exactly. And same with, with the fire service, you know? I mean, we, you know, we respond to an address, that's it. Or, you know, an intersection yeah. of there's a car. And it never, never factors in, you know, someone's background. It's irrelevant. It's a human being in need, and we respond to help them. Yeah, exactly. Right. Well, then transitioning to the book. So what made you write Surviving Logan? Well, it was actually extremely cathartic for me. Like back then we never had, um, you know, after a big incident, we'd sit around and discuss it. We never had that. And we definitely didn't have it on the rescue team. Like we were volunteers after the rescue was over. Everybody was exhausted, wanted to get home as quick as they can. So after the Mount Logan rescue, like we would, you know, maybe talk about it around uh, the dinner table or something for a few minutes, but we never really talked about the whole ordeal. So all these years, like all these things happened that I thought people did, that turns out other people did, and that I had no idea what happened behind the curtains. So I finally sat down with every single person and got their their story, like, you know, what they went through, what they did and put it together. One thing I want to do is I wanted to thank all the, the wonderful men and women that saved my life. And the other is I, I wanted to know what happened. I wanted to know, you know, who, who saved my life and what they were thinking when that happened or, you know, who had to listen to me dying on the radio and, 
you know, needed therapy afterwards because it was so traumatic to hear things like that. Like how can I help them after they help me? And how can I basically tell my story just so other people who, you know, that get their injuries know that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And no matter how bad our injuries are, you can come back if you want. It was close. Like I, I, I promised myself I wouldn't crawl into a bottle and die. And I pretty much did. So it, it's hard. Like it's a constant fight. And especially with the opioids, like if I, I refused to take any opioids because I knew I'd probably like them and end up homeless because I, I'd seen enough smart, intelligent people, you know, do that downward spiral from like an injury to the next thing, you know, they're at the homeless shelter. Yeah, exactly. Well, and the thing is, you mentioned um, the people hearing you on the radio. I think that's another group that gets left out in a lot of these conversations is dispatch. You know, these these men and women that are sitting in these dispatch centers that listen to people take their last breaths or listen to a firefighter trapped in a building and, you know, and, and get lost and die. So, you know, like you said, all these different links in the chain of survival that all come together it must have been pretty powerful to to kind of reverse engineer and, and find out how they were doing and like you said some of them were struggling too oh exactly i did dispatch for a while and that is a tough tough job absolutely now the the catharsis so so tell me about that as you were writing you know what were, what were you experiencing mentally and physically from from that release Mentally, it was a re- it was super helpful because I realized, you know, how people move earth, heaven and earth to help me like that really made me feel good about myself that I'm worth saving. So like, you know, different agencies were in contact and, you know, it wasn't okay, who's going to pay for this? It was like, let's just go get them and then we'll figure it out. It was um, people coming together that I've never met that knew that we were a volunteer search and rescue group in trouble. So let's help the people that would help us if we're in trouble. There was an incident, like we were all up in, we got flown to Alaska because it was the closest, best hospital to go to because that's uh, the, they, they deal with uh, coldness all the time up there, obviously. So we're up in Alaska. Now we got to get back to Canada. So Air Canada was going to charge us a huge amount of money because we needed three seats each because we had to lay down. And the owner of Gross Mountain found out about that. He had enough points that he just bought us. He just said, give them what they want. So next thing you know, we're on an Air Canada flight coming home. You know, just because somebody saw we needed help, we wanted to come home. And he's like, here, I've never met these three guys, but I'm in a position I can help them. Let's help. And I remember thinking, you know, what a, what a kind gesture. That must be how every family felt when I brought a child back to them that was lost up in the mountains or their son who was trapped on a rope up a cliff, I mean, you know, this is, this is great. This makes me feel like I'm loved. I'm useful. Yeah. Well, exactly. That's how it should have felt in, in the department, but it's, it's so good that you did feel it from other people. Cause I think that's most people. And depending on the echo chamber that you're in, you might be surrounded by hate or you might be surrounded by love. Oh, well, it's funny. I, like I said, I wish I got hired now because the Chiefs are doing much better. There's still a couple like chinks in the armor. I remember I got a, I retired and I got a letter of cease and desist. They didn't like that I was talking bad about the department. And I go, well, it's my opinion. And I go, I didn't listen to you when I worked there. Why the hell am I going to listen to you now? <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean that, that's it's that's how you force change, though. You know, I th- I feel exactly. the same way. You know, I'm not out here to badmouth at all. That's why every every episode has a guest, and we have a discussion, and we bring solutions to problems. But if you don't shake the tree a little bit, things aren't going to get better. And and I must admit, watching Vancouver, things are getting better up this way. Different departments are taking initiative. One department, Vancouver. They have a guy on staff. His only job is mental health. You can phone him 24 hours a day and, you know, if you have a problem. And if he was available when I was going through mine, I think I would have done mine a lot easier, a lot quicker, and it would have saved the city a lot of money because I went off on stress leave. Now you're paying me not to be there. Where if, Wouldn't you rather pay to make a better fireman than pay a fireman just not to be there? Yeah. Well, exactly. And that's something I talk about a lot, whether it's physical health, mental health, um, you have shift work. I mean, you, when you're saying you have four shifts, were, were you on um, 24-72s? No, we work 10-hour days, 14-hour nights. So you work two days, two nights. Okay, was that 42-hour week, work week? Yeah. Yeah, so so a lot of the... Um, you know, the states down here, they're 48, 56-hour work weeks, you know. So again, investing in... The shifts to bring those work weeks down is a great investment in your people that will, as you said, save money down the road. Investing in mental health, investing in physical health will save money. So even if you don't care about human life, which you should as an administrator, you are still going to fiscally be much better off. You just have to look at the the long game. You know, you can't look at a budget year as a singular event, but you have to invest, you know, plant the seeds and reap the benefits 10 years from now. And see, I didn't really leave the department a better place than when I started. And I think everybody wants to do that. And again, like you're saying, if they had invested in me, I would have invested in the crews and the guys coming up after me. And that would have been instead of like that department at the time was kind of going down, that would have turned around to make it a better place. The guys coming up and below me are interested. They're, they're there. They want to be there. So wouldn't that, make so much more sense monetarily to have a department that is like just trying to excel in a department that's well we get paid every two weeks yeah well exactly well i want to transition to some closing questions so i can let you go um we talked about surviving logan so firstly where can people find that uh amazon's probably the easiest most uh mountain climbing bookstore or mountain climbing stores will have it hopefully the problem is, is it's an expensive book because there's a lot of, you know, glossy pictures. And it's so funny because the people that like this kind of book are usually firemen and climbers and both are notorious, notoriously cheap. So I don't think there's going to be a lot of people willing to spend the 20 bucks to buy it. Um, if you got, uh, if you can read it off your computer, that's probably the best way. But Amazon or just any specialty bookstore or any bookstore can order it in for you. Excellent. Are you doing an audiobook for it? Yeah, there's already one out there. Okay, fantastic. So if they have Audible, they can get it that way too then. Yeah. Excellent. All right. So is there a book that you love to recommend that someone else has written? It can be a, something to do with what we've discussed today or something completely different. Oh, good question. Nobody's asked me that before. There's a lot of uh, – I like touching the void. <laughs> it's a mountain climbing book, but it's also a survival survival story. And I had the uh, honor of meeting uh, Mr. Yates, who's uh, part of it. He was it was written by a guy called Joe Simpson. I've never met him, but I met his partner. 
I think that's a great, great book. Fantastic. I haven't had that uh, recommended before, so I have to look that one up. Um, is there a movie that you love? I love all the the fantasy movies, like the Star Wars and all those kind of funny ones like that. Jeez, uh, a movie. I just watched uh, Once for Kings, or Once for Warriors. Not, it's a fantastic movie, although it's rather depressing, but I thought it'd be a great movie for people to watch just during these times to show how other nationalities may be suffering also. It's um, it's about the Maoris in New Zealand, and it's really, really well done, but it is quite depressing. Yeah, incredible movie, and, and really highlights um, domestic abuse and child abuse too. Yeah. All right, then what about a documentary? Any of those that you love? I love Michael Moore. <laughs> I love to... Because he always seems to take on the bad guy and just kind of just bug bug him. I'd love to travel around with him and just watch the faces of uh, <laughs> the people getting caught in lies. Um, I just watched uh, the 13th about uh, that was incredibly powerful. Again, it's very depressing, but it, if more people know the facts, I think they're less likely to say stupid things. Um, that's an incredible documentary that just came out on Netflix. I strongly suggest. Yeah, I've, I've, uh, I like Michael Moore stuff. The only, the only thing I wish is like Sicko was a great one, and he's talking about healthcare. Yet he doesn't seem to take care of his own health. You know, so that's a kind of <laughs> contradiction. But I do like where he comes from because he does. He pokes the bear a lot, and I like that. You know, from from either side. And then Thirteenth, I've raved about. It. I've watched it three times now. It's absolutely incredible. When you look at how how what a disaster you know the the prison system and and our drug policy and some of these things and how they've created you know 2.3 million prisoners in the US um you know it's it's horrendous and we want to talk about change in this country that's an area we really need to look at strongly i think like with me like the prisoners like yeah okay you have to go to prison i guess like a lot of this stuff i don't think they should have gone i think that you have far too many but now, okay, you're in there. Let's do something useful with them. Let's give them education. Let's give them a trade. Let's have it so when they get out, they're a useful part of society. Not just, okay, well, you're in there for 10 years. Like, let's put you in the corner, forget about you in 10 years, think that you're going to come out a better person. You can't. So, if, again, yeah. if you invest, like the fire department should invest in the people, if the U.S. invested in the prisoners, and have them come out as better people. The recidivism rate should go way down. And now you have a workforce that's willing to work. Yeah, well, exactly. And we talked about addiction a lot. And so many of our, you know, brother, sister, firefighters and, excuse me, brother and sister firefighters are struggling with that. Well, there's so many men and women in prisons that are struggling with addiction. That's what got them there. So, you know, viewing that mental health crisis within our prisons, you know, it's it's so, from what I understand, it's so easy to get the drugs still in prison. So that whole illicit drug trade needs to be addressed because if we stop creating addicts on our streets, we're going to affect the prisons and we're going to affect the crime. Well, we're trying to get psychedelics decriminalized up here it's the same war cry that they've always had if we decriminalize it oh yeah there'll be anarchy and we decriminalize marijuana and so far i haven't seen any anarchy (laughs) 
you know, seen a lot of people like buying donuts. Other than that, I haven't seen anything different. <laughs> well, I've, I've, I had a guest on who was in Portugal that decriminalized all drugs because the, you know, the, there are some that are on opiates and meth and things, and they go to these clinics. And they're able to filter them through rehab programs and mental health programs, and they completely reverse their their drug problem. Switzerland completely legalized all drugs and did the same thing. So there are countries that have tried it that have shown it's not going to be anarchy, quite the opposite. But what they have done is taken the money and power out of the criminals and put it back into the medical community where it belongs. Well, exactly. Like start, you know, investing, like you say, in um, rehabs instead of prisons. And shouldn't have prisons for profit. Like you're bound to run into problems there. Exactly. All right. Well, then next question. Is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? I got a but or Lionel Carruthers. I think he'd be great. Um, I, I got another gentleman. I don't want to throw his name out now because I want to ask him his permission first. He's a, he, he was in the Canadian Army, and he's one of the few Canadians that have actually fired his weapon in anger. And he also became uh, a first responder. He's a firefighter. And he was one of the guys I sat down and talked with who I was just so impressed with. He's such a calm person, and he can explain it. Like, you know, this is a normal reaction to extremely abnormal conditions. So don't feel bad about what you're going through it's probably a good thing if it didn't bother you a bit you know there's something wrong with you if you can say that okay i went to a call and i saw these two dead babies but i'm fine it didn't affect me whatsoever you know that that would scare me a bit because it should affect you to see something so horrific Oh, absolutely. Well, Lionel and his wife Joanna have been on the show already. But um, if if your uh, your friend is willing, I would love to to you know connect with him as well because then it sounds like another in, you know incredible journey. Especially if you've been in the military and then first responders, those are two very parallel paths that have crossed. Oh, definitely. I'll, what I'll do is I'll email you his info once I talk to him. So I've got one more question before we make sure we know where to find you. Um, what do you do to decompress these days? hike i go for lots of hikes and i ride the harley if it's a beautiful day there's nothing like being on a harley when you're riding the harley i always say you know what you think about you think about riding on your harley every world's problem just dissipates and goes away and you're just in the moment it's probably one of the best things you can do for yourself it's similar to yoga or meditating fantastic all right well if people want to reach out to you where where can they find you online oh um you can go to Surviving Logan. I'm on Facebook, Eric, Eric B. Arneson, E-R-I-K-B-J-A-R-N-A-S-O-N. Um, yeah, I'd love to. Anybody that has a mental health issue, like I love to, or don't love, but I enjoy talking to people and helping them. And if you want to reach out to me, I'd be more than happy to talk with you. Brilliant. Well, Eric, I want to say thank you. Firstly, um, you know, for, for being so generous with your time now, but also, you know, writing Surviving Logan. Every time someone writes a book and you said it was cathartic for you, this is another way for someone to realize that they're not alone. Just like you said, that we all struggle and some of us, you know, find, uh, roots that are very healthy and that's great. But some of us take some very dark paths and, you know, hopefully find out our way out the other side. But, by writing the book, you are adding just another, 
you know, another testimony, another story of courage and transparency. So thank you for taking the time to come on here and thank you for the book as well. Well, thank you for having me.